Let's take our Bibles and turn, if you would, with me to the book of Acts chapter 8. Uh, Acts chapter 8. Uh, as we turn in our Bibles there, we, uh, from Acts chapter 6, we have uh, the deacons, first deacons of the church that were elected to take care of the daily ministrations. But what we come to find out very quick in, chap- in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 is that the deacons were pretty good preachers too. Uh, Stephen and Philip both were great ministers of the gospel and they were evidently powerful preachers. And a powerful preacher only means a preacher that preaches the truth of the gospel. Uh, uh, there's no comment as to the delivery, the manner of the delivery, but there's a lot of comment about the manner of the message. And uh, that is what we emphasize. Again, uh, as we look throughout the book of Acts, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And so uh, that is the message of Acts. And we've looked to hear at the, the general statements at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 uh, that the church was going through persecution. It was great. There was also great lamentation. Uh, but then we find that the church, they were scattered about. They were preaching the word. And I asked ourselves the question, if you remember last week, that if we were like the church at Jerusalem and if we were under great persecution and there was great lamentation in the church, and then let's just say for just a moment that we were all scattered because of that persecution, would we be just like the church in Acts and preaching the word everywhere we were scattered to? I think that's a serious question to consider. That if we are going to be like the first century church... There is got to be a consuming passion for the gospel of Christ that even though persecuted, the gospel does not stop. It's what our life has become about. And that's what we see evidently here. And we looked at Philip and we'll pick it up here in verse 5. We'll read again some of the um, verses we dealt with last week and continue in our study of Acts 8. Notice the Bible says, Acts 8 verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. The unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came um, out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed, and there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, uh, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. 
Thou hast neither part nor lot in this manner, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart uh, may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye the Lord uh, for me, to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. I would like to bring your attention to verse 23 as Peter responds to Simon's uh, proposal uh, to give money so that he could receive the gift. Now the gift is important here. The gift of laying on of hands so that somebody else could receive the Holy Ghost. Peter replies to him and he says that uh, he needs to repent and he perceived that he is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I'd like to preach on Simon this morning on this a phrase that we find in verse 23, the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. The gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. What is uh, very helpful in the book of Acts is that the book of Acts is, um, is a faithful record of what happened in the first century church. It is not everything that happened, but it is interesting that some details that often we think might be unpleasant are actually given to us. One of those is in the beginning of Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, and God does not conceal the fact that sometimes the church was troubled in the case of Ananias and Sapphira who lied. And we find that God chastened them and they both died uh, prematurely because of their disobedience and their sin. And so God, God does not hide anything. He just lays it out and lets us know what happened in the first century uh, churches. And here in the uh, church, uh, uh, because of the persecution, believers are going now to Samaria. And we come here to this place in Samaria, which is the capital of the region of Samaria, that Philip is preaching and people are receiving uh, the word of truth. And uh, we dealt with the general message of Philip and the general reaction and the condition of the people in Samaria. But I want us to focus this morning on Simon because as we look throughout this narrative and this account, there is two things going on. On one end, the Bible tells us what happened in Samaria. And there are snippets where we, are, we see what was going on with Simon particularly. And so there's the, what, the general happenings of Samaria... And then the Bible just focuses, uh, for example, in verse 9 and 11 on Simon. Then verse 13, Simon. Verse 18 and 19, Simon. And then again verse 24, and Simon. And so throughout all the great things happening in Samaria, God chooses to highlight one individual man and what happened there. And I would like to preach on the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity in this faithful record that we find in the book of Acts, particularly looking at Simon. But before we go there, we know that uh, Philip, he comes to Samaria, and the Bible says that Simon had done sorceries and he had bewitched the people. And so when Philip comes to Samaria, how does he deal with bewitched people? And this is what he deal, uh, how he deals with bewitched people. He preached Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel. That's the answer to the world. I think that we would all we are all aware that there are people, uh, to some respects, who are deceived, who are bewitched in our world, and we say, "Well, Pastor, how do we deal with bewitched people?" We preached the gospel. That's what Philip did, and people's lives were changed. They believed and were baptized. But let's look at Simon here, 
because Simon is also going to respond, but something happens in the life of Simon that I believe uh, should, cause, should pa- cause us to pause and to say, what is it that God is trying to show us in this chapter with regard to Simon? There are two things going on simultaneously. The work in Samaria generally, but then the highlight of one man in Samaria. So let's look first of all, as we think, consider Simon, we see his boasting of greatness. That's the first thing we know about Simon is that uh, he was not only a sorcerer in verse 9, he bewitched the people of Samaria. Notice what at the end of verse 9, giving out that himself was some great one. You see, we identified Simon here already last week as being a sorcerer who bewitched the people. And the idea of sorcery, the word sorcery was basically the practice of magic arts. This was a man who would use enchantments and divinations. Sorcery is the practice of witchcraft, of wizardry, of magic, of divination, of enchanting. As we already noted, this ungodly practice is found not just here but throughout the Bible. Uh, Such people often would uh, study astronomy and medicine and philosophy. And uh, often these people would claim to have the ability to contact the the dead, to foretell the future, to cast spells on people, to have uh, certain powers. We, We see that not just here, but also in the Old Testament. And so that is uh, what Simon was involved in. And because he was involved in sorcery, the Bible says he bewitched the people. Twice it is said in verse 9 and then in verse 11, the word bewitched means that people were basically astonished by this man, by what he did. Evidently, he did something that wowed the people. The people were impressed by what he did. They said, at the end of verse uh, verse, uh, 10, This man is the great power of God. They give regard to this man. That was their their sense as they thought about Simon, but they were bewitched. The word bewitched indicates that people were entranced or enraptured by uh, his sorcery, by whatever he did. They were transfixed by the things that Simon had been doing among them. We defined uh, the... the, um, the word bewitched meaning to fascinate, to, to gain an ascendancy over the charms or incantations, an operation which was formerly supposed to injure the person bewitched. It means to charm someone, to fascinate, to please to such a degree as to take away the power of resistance. They were bewitched. It means to deceive, to mislead by trickery. In other words, when you see the word bewitch, it means that it is an imposter. And yet, it is evident that he has displayed some type of a power. And we all understand as we look at the Bible that our adversary, the devil, is powerful. He has power. And there are uh, demons in this world. There are the works of darkness going on, and we should not ignore that. Uh, there are, uh, but there was here, what I'm interested in this passage, is that there was an underlying reason why Simon practiced sorcery in order to bewitch the people. Verse 9 tells us that he was giving out himself, that himself was some great one. You see, this is what gives Simon away. He did what he did... For himself. 
And he probably appealed to the people and said, hey, I, I can heal you and I can uh, contact the dead for you. Whatever it was, the people were entranced by him and somehow, some way, the people were amazed by him. But the reason why he did all that was all about himself. He was giving out himself that he was some great one. And uh, we find that that is contrary to the preaching of Philip. Evidently, as I made the point last week, when Philip came and he preached Christ unto the people of Samaria, it is evident that the people says, we found something that we did not have before. So evidently, whatever uh, Simon was doing did not satisfy them. And the things of this world and the sorceries of this world and the bewitching of the world never satisfy because as soon as Philip comes, they take heed to the preaching of Philip and they find, we find them believing. But we see here his boasting of greatness. And as a result of this man's deception, people looked upon Simon, according to verse 10, as a man having the power of God. At least that's what they thought. Did he have the power of God? Of course he did not. The Bible says in verse 11, To him they gave regard because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. And then we have an interruption in verse 12, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. I find it interesting that when you read earlier in verse 6 and 7, that Philip was doing signs and wonders and miracles, uh, but the main thrust of the ministry of Philip was that he was preaching Christ. And what did the people believe? They believed the message. They, they did not believe the signs and the wonders of Philip. They believed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Uh, their belief was in the right thing. They were baptized, notice, both men and women. And so no matter what Simon did before, evidently the message that Philip brought caused them to believe. Not, not, they were no longer in wonder of the uh, bewitching and the sorcery of Simon. They were in wonder at the name of Jesus Christ. You see, there are churches today who are engaging in what they say is conducting miracles of healing and so on, and the gift of speaking in tongues and all those things, and they basically have a, uh, uh, they try to amaze the people by those miracles, and there's very a satisfaction with the person of Christ. The gospel of Christ does not include miracles. We'll talk about the miracles and what those were about in just a moment. But we see the boasting, his boasting of greatness. But then we read, after many people believed in verse 12, we see his belief in Jesus. Notice verse 13, what it says. Verse 12 documents that uh, there was men and women who believed and were baptized, both men and women. And then verse 13 says, Then Simon himself believed also. So in other words, whatever was happening there affected Simon in some degree that he also believed. He not only believed, but he was baptized and he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, uh, this is where I find something interesting happening is because there is a separation between what is happening in the crowd and what is happening in the life of Simon. If you notice here, the Bible says that the crowd, they believed in the name of Jesus Christ and they were baptized, both men and women, but something is added about Simon. The Bible says he, he believed and he was also baptized, but he continued and he, 
he wondered and he beholding the miracles and signs which were done. It seems that Simon uh, is uh, chasing something more than just the name of Jesus Christ. He's interested in signs and wonders. That's what it's, he seems to be concerned with, which is separate a little bit from the crowd at that time. And so we see his belief in Jesus. I'm not going to belabor that. I'm going to touch on that a little, again, uh, a little bit again later. But the third thing we see is his bribe for power. So after there is a, a moving of God in the lives of the people of Samaria, uh, not only the people of Samaria, but also Simon himself, whom they knew and he believed, and he was baptized. He is continuing with Philip. Then verse 13, 14, the Bible says, Now when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. For what purpose? Who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to pause right there and someone will say, Well, wait a minute, Pastor. The Bible says that they believed and were baptized. Don't you receive the Holy Ghost the moment you believe? And you would be right to say that. But the Bible says that these people here apparently had not received the Holy Ghost. But then notice there is a parenthesis. Verse 16. For as yet He, the Holy Ghost, was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid, their, uh, then laid they their hands on them, uh, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, this is what Simon is going to see. The Bible says in verse 18, And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. So we, not only do we see the, his boasting of greatness, his belief in Jesus, but we see his bribe for power. He sees something happening, and he wants whatever ability Peter and John had to lay their hands on people and to give the Holy Ghost to them, he wanted that same type of power. Now, as we read throughout the book of Acts, I have to take a pause here and to deal with this because there are four instances in the book of Acts that we read about where the Holy Ghost comes down upon believers. The first instance, back in Acts chapter 2, was at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Now, we've already studied this portion of Scripture. Remember, the Holy Ghost came down and sat upon each of them. This, in this instance, they spoke with other tongues. Those other tongues, we know, in Acts 2, were known languages by which the gospel was preached. That's what we find in uh, Acts 2, verse 3 and 4. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit, of, uh, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So understand what's happening there. God, this is the moving of God upon men and through men. This is distinct from believing and receiving the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's the empowering of God for the proclamation of the gospel. It is a miraculous event that is taking place in Acts chapter 2. The second instance that we find this happening is right here in Acts chapter 8 uh, in Samaria. So the first occurred in Jerusalem and Judea. The second occurrence happened in Samaria. These believers who were baptized received the 
gift of the Holy Ghost. We read um, when Peter responds to Simon's offer in verse 20, But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. What gift is he referring to? Not salvation. The gift of laying on of hands so that somebody else could receive the Holy Ghost. That's the gift he's talking about. That's what Simon gave money for. So to have the ability to lay hands on someone so that they could receive the Holy Ghost. The uh, third instance was in Caesarea. So this is north of Galilee. If you go with me to Acts chapter 10. Now we're going to look at this again, but I just want to highlight those four instances when we see the Holy Ghost coming upon people. Uh, This is in Caesarea, and specifically in the house of Cornelius. While Peter was preaching, the Bible says, The Holy Ghost fell on all who believed, and they spake with tongues. Notice verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues, and magnified, and magnified God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water, that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost, as well as we? So notice here, these people were not even baptized, but apparently upon their believing, the Holy Ghost comes upon them, and then there's a supernatural manifestation, and they're speaking in tongues. Uh, Notice it was known because they were praising God. There's a fourth instance we find in the book of Acts, and that is found in Ephesus, if you go with me to Acts 19. We're just highlighting those. We're going to deal with those more thoroughly uh, later. But notice in Acts 19, this is uh, Paul when he is at, at Ephesus and he was traveling. And he comes across men who had been former disciples of John the Baptist. And if you remember, these men here received the Holy Ghost and they also spake with tongues and they prophesied. Notice verse 2. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. And then said Paul, uh, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that ye should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So we look at those instances and we see again, this is every single instance in the book of Acts where the Holy Ghost comes down upon men And something miraculous takes place. This is not the typical pattern. Every time someone believes this happens. This is particular instance. And notice here by location. The first time it happened was in Jerusalem. The second time it happened was in Samaria. The third time it happened among Gentiles, it was in Capernaum. And then the last time it happened was in Ephesus with some of John the Baptist's disciples. Scripture is clear that every single one who believes receives the Holy Ghost within them. Uh, We refer to that, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. What is that? But 1 Corinthians 12, let's turn there. So we see what the scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, notice with me verse 12 and 13. The Bible says, For as the body is one, 
and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. Who by one spirit as, uh, uh, are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been uh, all made to drink into one spirit. So notice here, we are all baptized into one body. What is that? That's the body of Christ. And all of us who believe have been baptized into that body. You see, the Holy Ghost coming upon the believers in those four instances in Acts is clearly understood as God giving signs and wonders and miracles to confirm the gospel message. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews and, and chapter 2, notice verse 1 with me. The Bible says, Hebrews 2, 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What is he talking about? Well, this is what he says. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. And so he's talking about this great salvation that we have, that we should not neglect this great salvation. And he says that at first it began to be spoken to us by the Lord, and then it was confirmed by them that heard them, the apostles, so Jesus Christ, the apostles, and God uh, bear witness of the apostles of that message, both in Christ and the apostles. How? by signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gift of the Holy Ghost. You see, it is important as we read through the book of Acts that the book of Acts is about, in part about what? It's about God showing us that He has confirmed the message of the gospel by signs, wonders, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost is not the receiving of salvation the moment you believe. The gift of the Holy Ghost is the supernatural empowerment of God at His own will to come upon men to confirm the message of the gospel. And notice here what uh, Hebrew says, which at the first, that's the way it was at the beginning. We no longer need that gift of the Holy Ghost or those signs and those wonders because that's what was done at first. And the Bible says it was according to his own will. So understand, the reason why the people in Samaria received the gift of the Holy Ghost was not because Peter laid hands on them, was because it was God's will. As a matter of fact, not every time you see men laying hands on do you see that happening. Uh, we see Acts chapter 13, uh, when Paul would be sent out of the church of Antioch, they laid hands on them. There was no supernatural observance of the Holy Spirit of God. It was done according to the will of God at the first. Just like the miracles during the time of Christ were there to confirm that He was indeed the Messiah. And so the signs and the miracles in the first century church were there to confirm again that that indeed was the message from God. You see, the Holy Ghost miraculously coming upon believers in Acts was done according to the will of God for the purpose of confirming the message of salvation. The message 
has already been confirmed by God and in no longer today needs to be confirmed by man. Let me make that clear. The, 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 the salvation message that we have uh, that has already been confirmed by God and no longer needs to be confirmed by man. So a man who walks around and says, well, I have the gift of healing. I say, no, you don't. Well, yes, I'm here to confirm. No, it's already been confirmed. And God confirmed it, confirmed it and you sure are not going to confirm it. Why do we think that man can do something that only God can? You see, furthermore, we see that it was interesting here because today the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement, they say, well, you need to pray to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost to pray in tongues. That's not what they did here. The Bible says it was both Peter and John who prayed and those uh, on those who first believed and were baptized. So even the believers did not pray for this special gift, for this special unction from God. It was Peter and John that prayed. Now, you say, well, pastor, we don't see them speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 8. You're correct. We don't read that. But let me ask you this. When Peter and John laid their hands on them, if nothing supernatural had happened at that time, do you think Simon would have given money to have the same power? If nothing supernatural had happened? It is obvious that something happened, and the four only times that we find the gift of the Holy Ghost coming upon men, four times in Acts, three other of those times... The speaking of tongues was so something supernatural happened for Simon to say, I want that gift. I want the ability to lay my hands on someone so that they also can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So we see here, again, this was a detour, but we have to understand today when we read throughout the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a transitional book. Those assigned gifts are temporary gifts. Again, as Hebrews tells us, at the first. That's what God did at the first. We know that the sign gifts uh, would cease. They're not permanent gifts. There are permanent gifts of the church, but they don't involve tongue speaking and healing. That was given to the first century apostles, and we see only four instances. And today we have whole movements, church movements, who bear their entire uh, church ministry upon trying to recreate what only happened four times in church history that we read about. So we see his boasting of greatness, we see his belief in Jesus, we see his bribe for power, but lastly, we see his bond of iniquity. Now, Peter is going to reply to Simon. Now Simon asks again, notice verse 18, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power. Something supernatural happened, that on whosoever I lay hands on, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this manner, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. There is a debate uh, on this passage and some people say, well here it's clear that Simon uh, was not a believer. And some people say, well yes, you read earlier in verse 13, the Bible says the people in Samaria believed and then the Bible says Simon believed also and he was baptized. 
And so there's a, a debate as those who study the Bible, the students of the Bible, some say, well, uh, Simon, obviously he was saved because he believed. But on the, on the other hand, you find that uh, what uh, Peter says is pretty strong. You're not right with God. Your money, uh, money perish with you. And he says, you're, uh, it seems I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So what is it? Was Simon saved or was he not saved? Well, here's my answer, my dogmatic answer. We don't know. We don't know. The Bible does not tell us. Notice what Peter says. The Peter himself, who, if you think, he is a man uh, filled with the Holy Ghost, this is what Simon says. Uh, or not Simon, obviously, it was Simon Peter, but that's what Peter said. Notice verse 23. I perceive. That's what Peter said. Peter said, he didn't say, I know. He says, I perceive. The word perceive means to discern, to attend to what he witnessed. Uh, Peter perceived that Simon was in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What, what does that mean? Well, the word gall is defined as the following. In the literal sense, it refers to a, I don't mean to be give you details that might make you uncomfortable, but it is basically, means to build secreted, it is a, a liquid buildup secreted in the glandular substance of the liver. Uh, it is basically glutinous fluid, like oil-like. It refers basically to anything that is extremely bitter. That's what it refers to. In the figurative sense, it refers to either anger or the bitterness of the mind. Something going on inside. The term gall applies to anything of extreme bitterness. It is used here to describe Simon's spiritual condition. Moses used the similar expression with regard to the sin of idolatry in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. This is what Moses said. He says, Lest there should be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there, be, uh, there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. So that's what Moses said concerning the sin of idolatry. It is a, a bitter thing. In Hebrews 12.5, it mentions that sin brings about a root of bitterness. Sin is bitter and it is poisonous to the body. Even the prophet Jeremiah prophesied against Israel in Jeremiah 2.19. And he said this, he said, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. So the Bible says, uh, Peter says, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness. There's something going on inside you that I perceive is not right, is poisonous inside of you. Whatever your spiritual condition is, it is bitter and poisonous and it's something from within. Yeah, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness. And then he says, and in the bond of iniquity. The word bond, we know that means, it basically means a joint tie. It is to be banded together to something or someone. The bond communicates uni a uniting principle or control. It is used in reference to anything that binds. It could be a cord, a chain, a rope, a band. It is that which holds things together. It represents a state of servitude or slavery 
It represents one who is captive. The bond of iniquity. So here's here's what Peter is saying. I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What is uh, Peter saying? It seems like, Simon, you are still a slave to sin. That's what I perceive. That's what it seems like to me. And that's what Peter says. What had Peter observed or discerned about Simon? What do we observe in our text that would seem to give Simon away? Well, there's indications throughout the text. That's why there's the narrative of what happened in Samaria. But every once in a while, the Bible tells something about Simon. It gives us an indication about his life. The first time we see that is verse 13. Then Simon himself believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. The first thing we read about Simon after he believed is this. Simon seemed to be interested in the miracles and the signs more than Christ. That's what it seems to me. That's what the Bible says. He, he, he followed Philip around because he was beholding the signs in the water. Man, this is impressive. I want to see more. And that's what it seems like the Bible tells us he was interested in. Verse 18, notice we read, when Simon saw the gift of the Holy Ghost was given, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. So here we find that Simon's interest was piqued when power was manifested. He saw something out of the ordinary. And he thought to himself, I want to do that. That's a problem, isn't it? It seems that as we look at Simon's life, this would seem to be a problem. Read verse 19. He says, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. You notice, nothing about Christ anywhere. It's all about him. Give me this power so I can do the same thing. Simon here, verse 19, seemed to be unchanged from his former ways. Isn't that what he did before? He had bewitched the people. The people had wondered at Simon and now he almost wants the same power so people can still be be bewitched and amazed by him. Nothing about Christ. Verse 21, we read, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. So Simon's request revealed a heart problem. And then based on what he says in verse 24, after Peter says that there's a judgment coming, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, this is what Simon says in verse 24, Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Simon's own, Simon here only appears to repent because of the judgment pronounced upon him, and not because he was wrong. So Peter says, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What, are, what does that tell us? It seems to us that Simon, based on what we review, seemed to be interested in the miracles and the signs more than Christ. His interest was piqued by the power that was manifested. He seemed unchanged from his former ways. He reveals the, a heart problem and he appears to repent because of the judgment pronounced, not because he was wrong. And so Peter says, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. 
He said that your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now here's the question. Was Simon saved or was he not? Now you can make the own conclusions if, if you want. But I'll just say what Peter said. It seems to me. I perceive, based on what is said about Simon. That he is still in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Does that mean he was not saved? No. But it means potentially he was not saved. And that his belief was not a belief in the heart. But maybe just a mental assent to what he was seeing. That happened during the time of Christ. Many people believed, but these are the same people who cried out, crucify him. What did they believe in? Well, they believe in a Messiah who would be king, but not in a Messiah who would save him from their sin. You see, the object of the belief is very important. Now, the reason why I say that is because I'm not here trying to cause doubt upon whether he was saved or not. Again, God doesn't give us the answer. He says, he is not saved. Nor does Peter say that, but Peter says, but I perceive I want you to go with me in the New Testament. This is not just what we find in the book of Acts. Go with me to the book of Titus in chapter 1. In some of the New Testament epistles, we find uh, some instruction given to pastors, to churches, and uh, concerning Titus, in Titus chapter 1, uh, notice with me <clears throat> verse 16. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. Well, verse 15 says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. You see here? They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. Go with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at this section here. Let's begin reading in verse 15. Paul again, writing a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says this in verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, that their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Notice verse 20. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth and some to honor, and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. This is rooted in the teaching of Jesus Christ Himself. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ is nearing the end of His sermon, and this is what He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Now notice what uh, Paul said to Timothy. He says, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's what he says. And it is a way to discern whether someone is generally in the faith or not. It's not that you are saved by works, but your faith is discerned by your works. Matthew 7, he says this. Jesus says this in chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their, what? 
fruits. That's the teaching in Acts. That's what people. Uh, that's what Peter perceived. I perceive that there's something not lining up with what you said you believe in. That's what Paul wrote to, to Timothy. He said, "Let everyone, in the name of the name of Christ, depart from iniquity." Titus, same thing. They, they profess they know God, but in works they deny Him. He says, "Ye shall know them by their fruits." Do men gather grapes of thorns and of figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, whereby, uh, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But, in, uh, but uh, he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why do we have this record in Acts chapter 8? I believe that we have this record in Acts chapter 8. Because we have to examine ourselves, as Paul writes to the church, whether we be in the faith. I don't know whether Simon was saved or not. It appears that he wasn't. But he could be. I would not be so foolish to say that those who are Christian do not sin. And those who are Christians cannot once again be entangled with the yoke of bondage after the deliverance. We know that that is possible. The point is we don't know. But works reveal what's going on inside. And all Peter is saying is that I perceive, Simon, that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. I wonder if there's anybody this morning who said, Pastor, you know, maybe I've tried to convince myself that I'm saved, but I don't know that I'm really saved. It seems to me that there's a pattern in my life that, you know, I think that I believe maybe, you know, when I was, I don't know, I'm, I, there's confusion. If that's you, We'd like to talk to you and show you right from the Bible how you can just get that settled. We know who we are by the fruit. None of us are perfect. But there has to be a time where we examine whether we be in the faith. It is important for us to do so. God gives us this record not to tell us whether Simon was saved or not, but just to show us it seems that by his works Simon potentially had deceived himself or believed in the wrong thing. Maybe he had believed in Jesus Christ or maybe he was believing the miracles and that's what he was after. We don't know. But that's what Peter tells us he perceived. You know, it's important for us to find out where we are. We're going to go in the next study look at Philip going to the Ethiopian eunuch. Just a clear presentation, reading through Isaiah 53, and, and the eunuch believes and is baptized, and, and so on. Wonderful things happen. Uh, but I, I, I'm not preaching this message. Again, it's the next thing in Acts 8. All right, That's where I'm at. And so perhaps God would use this message, and perhaps you don't know, or you haven't settled, or you're troubled. You know, Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, joint heirs with Christ, 
And so there is a witness within us who confirms what we have believed in. You know, I meet people all the time. As a matter of fact, most people I believe, when I start talking about Jesus Christ, many people that I talk to, say, oh yeah, I go to church. I believe in Jesus Christ. I explain to them that Jesus died for your sins. And tell, yeah. And then I ask them, well, do you know you're going to heaven? And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm not sure. I can't sure. I'm trying to. Well, what Jesus did they believe in? Was there ever a time when you recognize who Jesus Christ is, that salvation is in Him? Often people, they come because often they say, they make a profession because, well, I want my life to be better. And so I'm going to believe and maybe if I, if I just give my life to Christ and everything will be wonderful and better. That's a false belief. We believe in Jesus Christ because it is through Him that we receive the forgiveness of sin. It is through Christ that we are justified. It is through Christ that we are reconciled to God. It is by Christ and by faith in Christ that we have imputed righteousness. And unless we have believed that, then I'm afraid that we are not saved if we believe in any other aspect of the life of Christ. You can believe His miracles. You can believe He died, but not understand those things. Again, I'm not saying that Simon did not believe those things because it is also possible on the other hand for a believer to be entangled once again in the yoke of bondage, as Romans 6 says. But it should cause us to pause and to say, am I a Christian? You see, this church, the confidence and the boldness of this church will be rooted in the confidence of our salvation. If people walk around and say, well, I'm not sure, you know, I hope so. There's no confidence there. There's no message to proclaim. And so something happened there in Samaria that would cause us to pause and say, Lord, would you be a witness? Will your spirit bear witness with my spirit that I am a child of God?